Amen? Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Let's go. Let me pray for us yet again and ask for the Lord to guide us through the study of his word. Our Father, thank you, Lord God, for your word. Your word instructs us, teaches us, comforts us, rebukes us, corrects us, equips us. Your word focuses on us, focuses us on what we ought to be thinking about, meditating on, that our steps might be ordered by you. Hallelujah. I pray, Lord God, that as we study the word today, that all who hear your word, Lord God, that all who hear would be inspired to love you, believe on you, trust in you. If anyone listens to these words, Lord, and they've not entered, not received Christ yet by faith, certainly I pray just as urgently as I can, Lord God, that People would not put that off, that people would come to Christ and believe on Christ and receive, understand it and receive salvation by your grace through faith. And those of us, Lord God, who are in Christ, we thank you and we praise you and we pray that our understanding of you would be sharpened. We pray that we would increase in the knowledge of you and love you more and desire to be obedient and doers of your word more because of it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. So here we go. Acts 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute... Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, 
Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the back of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, just declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And that's as far as we'll go with that for today, if we even go that far. Let's go right into this because what you see, <clears throat> as I have told you in recent weeks, as we continue to go through the book of Acts, we see a pattern that is very reflective of the very pattern that 
we experience as we walk through our lives as Christians serving the Lord. And that is, or should be, the gospel is being preached. We should all be part of the, the uh, activity of God reaching out to the world with the gospel. And then there is opposition and there is also rejoicing over some of the fruit. Right? And you see that as you go through these chapters and acts. Every opportunity, it seems like the apostles and the other Christians walk through open doors to preach the gospel. And there's always a response. The response is either opposition to it, and the opposition could be passive, like just blowing it off, or the opposition could be very fierce, like actually interfering and undermining and even endangering the lives of the evangelists. Or there could be a response that is favorable, which is that we do see people getting saved. And even in our day, even in our land, and even in our nation, removed so far from what we're reading, we still see that as well. Glory to God. Right? Now, here you see another form of opposition rise up. And this opposition is particularly deadly and dangerous, or potentially, because it rises from within their ranks. Right? The, the men who were creating this dissension, which could have potentially been lethal to the ministry of many of these churches, and could have created a schism in Christianity that potentially could still last in a severe form here today, 2,000 years later. Uh, they were of the sect of the Pharisees, but we're told they were of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. There were Pharisees who we know of that sect in history and from the Bible that they were very zealous, even overly so, for the law. They ran into much trouble even with Jesus when he was on the earth because in addition to trying to lord their authority over people by use of the law, they even expanded in some cases laws and added traditions that were their own to the laws of God. And some of them, though, did believe the gospel. But in their believing of the gospel, what they presumed was that when someone believed the gospel... The point of it was, yes, Jesus was the Messiah and died for our sins and rose from the dead. But certainly now, if somebody believes that, they're entering into the religion and the law and the code and, and everything that they have been championing for so many years, right? And now, add to that the further uh, astonishing fact that Gentiles were believing, right? So Gentile, this isn't just about fellow Jews now, it's about Gentiles as well. And so that creates the setting wherein chapter 15 starts. And let me just say this, what's at stake is really one of the most important, it's really one of the most important chapters in the book of Acts. Because what's at stake here is a correct understanding of what faith is, what the gospel is what it is that we believe, how it is that a person is saved. We are saved by God's grace. In these events, that understanding is threatened. And you, you raise through this controversy the possibility 
that people will begin to understand incorrectly that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough. Thanks to what happened here, right? I mean, we owe God so much, right? So much we could never pay back. But thanks to what God did through all of this and also the writing of the book of Galatians and many other things that appear in the New Testament, we can, with relative simplicity, open our Bibles and affirm that salvation is entirely by God's grace. And what that should do in us is inspire love for God, the worship of God, a devotion to God, and a confidence in spreading that message. And that's what I hope happens for you today as you listen to this. Let's unpack it. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. I have to stop there and make the first point about before I even get into what it was that they taught. There's something to be said about that statement right there, isn't there? And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Who were these people? Well, you read through the book of Galatians and you know that they are what we would call Judaizers. Maybe in a more commonly used theological word, we would say they are legalists because they believe what they believe, which we'll get into in a minute. But the thing that I really want to point out about this, so that we really are just like kind of all on the same page here and understand this. These certain men came down. I want to jump ahead. You see how the passage is structured, right? There's an introduction to what the problem is. You have this council, basically, in Jerusalem. Peter gets up, says what he says. Paul and Barnabas get up and say what they say. James gets up and says what, they, what he says. And then at the end of it, the resolution is we're going to write a letter. And this letter is going to instruct these Gentiles in all of these places that Paul and Barnabas just went. Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, right? All the places where they went. And it's going to instruct them. I want to jump ahead to that letter. Normally I would just follow a passage through sequentially. But I want you to see something very important. See verse 24? Look at verse 24. It says in the context of the letter here, Since we've heard that some who went out from us, from us is a reference to the fact that they were from Judea. As it says in verse 1, certain men came down from Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. So certain men have come down from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. Now here's the part I want to focus on. To whom we gave no such commandment. That is to say, these certain men were not authorized by the church to go and to speak. And I think it does us all good to note something very important. The church is a very precious institution to the Lord. Some people in the modern age don't even like the idea that the church is an institution at all. They think that it's just kind of a free thing where someone just believes the gospel and then whether they assemble with other Christians or not or whatever they do, they just believe the gospel, they pray a prayer and that's it. 
May I say to you, the formal, institutional, assembled church, led by elders, deacons, and has order to it, has structure to it, services, everything else, that is all of God. And these men went down of their own accord, right? And they went down just because they believed God was leading them, but had nothing to do with the authority of the church. And James, who is the head elder of the Jerusalem church, that's not James the Apostle. James the Apostle was put to death by the sword by King Herod. This is James, who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. The James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He is the head elder of the Jerusalem church. And he writes to these people in this letter and says, We did not send them. It is very important that when somebody, I believe, listen, God is sovereign and God can do whatever he wants, of course, and does whatever he wishes, whatever pleases him for his glory. This whole thing, the gospel, the great commission, the church, it's all his. What God has done from day one is establish church. Church is important in your life. You need to be part of church. You need to contribute to church. You need to be devoted to church. You need to participate in church. You need to be there when the church assembles. You need to contribute to the life of the church. You need to even have yourself under the authority of the church. Here are guys who just launched off to do whatever they want. And they almost destroyed first century Christianity with their nonsense. And you see that one of the foundational problems of what they did was they were not sent by the elders of the church. Even the Apostle Paul himself was in the church of Antioch for years before the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul and send them out. And then the church laid hands on them and sent them out. Paul and Barnabas were not these independent free spirits. Well, I'm just going to serve God. Whatever God wants me to do, that's it. No, God's arm is flexed through the church in history. And we need to understand that. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians at the end of it, and 1 Corinthians was a church that had a lot of problems like this. In the end of it, he wrote, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth was, is. The first fruits of Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That you also submit to such. And to everyone who works and labors with us. One of the biggest problems with that messy Corinthian church. And they were a blessed church. There were a lot of wonderful spiritual people in it. But one of the biggest problems in that church is they were out of order. Elsewhere in that letter it says, God loves things done decently and in order. And he closes that letter by saying, people like Stephanos, the first fruits here in Achaia, who has devoted himself to serving the Lord, him and other people like him, you submit yourself to them. Right? Christianity is not a free-for-all. Christianity is not everyone with a Facebook page or a YouTube channel or everyone who has an opinion just sounding off that has done so much harm to the testimony of Christ and it has created so much confusion in the doctrine of Christ. There are criteria laid out in Scripture for people who lead churches. 
right? And I'm not saying this about myself because very often I feel very unqualified and not up to the task myself. Somehow, by God's grace, He sustained me in it for 19 years. But I don't, but I did this, and that's all Him, all right? But it's not about me. It's not about the pastor. It's about the institution itself, the church. It is the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ Himself is the head. Amen? In Hebrews chapter 13, the author writes, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. And then it says, it doesn't end there, that would be enough. But then it goes on and it says, Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Okay? So, here you go, right away, before you even launch into the erroneous doctrine that was so dangerous, you know, you run into the problem that at the root of all of this was that these men went out speaking in the name of Jesus, but they had not been dispatched by the church to do so. And before you think like there's some problem with like there being order and, you know, you want to be someone who's like, well, I'm not going to submit to him. I'm not going to submit to that. I'm not going to submit myself to a church. There's all kinds of places in the New Testament where people are called to submit. Children are called to obey their parents, right? You okay with that? Bond servants are called to obey their masters. Wives are called to obey their husbands. Young people are called to submit to their elders. We are all called to submit ourselves to God. And we should all be under the authority of those who labor in love and according to God's word in the church. Do you see that? You could skip right over that little nuance and just miss it, couldn't you? But the passage starts by saying certain men went out. And then the letter that they write starts by, we didn't send them. That's the, that was the big problem right there. These guys are saying all this stuff unsettling your souls got nothing to do with us we didn't send them you be careful who you listen to listen yeah i listen I'm, I'm not naive to think that like this church and this pastor and this pulpit are the only things you're ever going to listen to nor do i think you should i mean if nothing else everybody should listen to john macarthur every now and then right <laughs> i mean without a doubt i do and there's others like that as well But listen, you be careful about who you listen to. And you make sure it's not just like, you know, something that is divorced from the authority of the local church. There are plenty of people who write blogs and do things online and everything else who are solid and good and wonderful. But man, they need to be like led by a church because that's the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. Do you understand? Old pastor, years and years ago in this church, used to like to say, God doesn't have any lone rangers. And that's true. We're part of the body of Christ. And there's order to that. Okay? Amen? Did you learn something there? I hope you did. All right, good. Now, now here's the doctrine of what they taught. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Got any problem with that? Of course. What does that have to do with the gospel? They were making it part of the gospel. Right? So, verse 2 tells us there's this big dissension. 
There's this big dispute. All of this is happening at Antioch, right? So what they decide in verse 2, at the end of it, is that they're going to send Paul and Barnabas and certain others up to Jerusalem, right? Because they're doing things right, like I just said. We're not just going to let anybody walk in here and say what they want to say. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's talk to the elders and the, and the church leaders and the apostles there. So verse 3 says they're sent on their way. Now look at this. When they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria and they describe the conversion of the Gentiles, what happens there? They cause great joy, right? Lots of happiness over all of the Gentiles who had gotten saved among all the brethren. It's not developed very much there in the verse itself, so I won't say too much more about it, other than to point out the salvation of others should cause great joy to Christians, right? I mean, if there's anything that ought to, like, make you happy and make you joyous and make you pray and make you thankful, it's when other people get saved. Doesn't the Bible say that the heavens rejoice over one sinner who repents? Yeah, so should you and I. Hallelujah. And I know you do. So, verse 4, they come to Jerusalem. Now, notice what happens here. They're received by who? The church. All right? So, we're still doing things. We're doing things properly here. They're received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And you see a bit of a transition here because... It's not just the apostles in charge of the church. The church in Jerusalem has matured. And now the church is being led by elders or pastors. And I do believe elder, pastor, basically the same person who's described in the Bible. The pastor is an elder. And so this is a very large church. It's described with the word multitude over later in the passage. And so there's, there's, you have the apostles, but you have multiple, a whole staff, it seems, of elders who are in charge of this church. So many that when, when Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, they're able to dispatch two of them, Barsabas and Silas, to go with them, who were leading men among the church. So they come into the church, and what happens? Verse 5. Well, verse 4, they report everything that's going on, and here comes the opposition. The Pharisees, so now it's not the ones who went down to Antioch. Now you can see it's everywhere, right? It's spread. It started, with, it started with the lack of the respect of the authority for the church. And it went into religious legalism and false doctrine. And you can see that it's there in the Jerusalem church, right under the noses of the apostles themselves. It's there in the Jerusalem church, and it had spread to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had come from, to discuss this. So some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying what? It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. As I said, the term that you will often hear, and I want to talk about this for a couple of minutes, the term that you will often hear to describe what they're doing here is legalism. And I want you to understand what legalism is. Because legalism is a deadly thing, but legalism is also misunderstood and things that aren't legalism are sometimes lab labeled legalism. So you need to understand what legalism is. Legalism is when you add any sort of requirement to the gospel of grace in order for someone to be saved. When you impose any rule of conduct, any religious ceremony, anything that man does where he is told, you must do this or you're not saved, 
That's legalism, right? Here's what legalism is not. Legalism is not a life that has no rules, right? Legalism is not a life that has no rules of conduct. Legalism is not a life with no restraint on it, right? Legalism is not a life that has no obligations. You'll note that in dealing with legalism, the elders and apostles wrote a letter at the end of this passage that goes on and places restraint on their conduct, right? See, and if you look at that again, peek ahead to the letter at the end of the chapter. It says, it's in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Right? Is that legalism? Is that legalism to tell them they can't practice sexual immorality? Is it legalism to tell them that they need to abstain from things that were offered to idols, and they need to abstain from blood, and they need to abstain from things strangled? No, it's not legalism. It's a restraint on their conduct that is motivated by love for the many Jews who are part of the Christian church at that time. They're not being told, you must do these things or you're not saved. That would be legalism, right? Legalism is when you add requirements to the salvific call of the gospel, right? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the scriptures. That's the good news of what God did. The gospel call to people is to humble themselves, repent, and believe the gospel. That believing the gospel, when you add anything to that, believe the gospel and abstain from sexual immorality. Believe the gospel and don't eat pork. Believe the gospel and observe the Sabbath on Saturday. Believe the gospel and circumcise all of your males. And if you don't do that, you're not saved. That's legalism. That's poison. And that's the reason why the book of Galatians was written to pronounce a curse on anyone who would add anything to the gospel. So then the question is, why do the apostles add these things in? If you read the letter carefully, what does it say? And I'm sorry we're not sequentially going through the verses like I typically do, but I think understanding this passage of Scripture necessitates the jumping around a little bit here. It says, For it seemed, verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And if you back up to what James had said back in verse 21, Very important statement. After James had proposed writing this letter and saying these things, he says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, as the gospel is being spread, these Gentiles who are believing and being saved, they don't need to do anything else in order to be saved. They just believe the gospel and they are saved by God's grace and that's it. However, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit because of the sake of the testimony of the church, the love of the church. It is useful and good to have these rules of conduct. They have nothing to do with whether the people are saved or not. But for the sake of the love of the Jewish believers in these churches all over the place who... 
as James notes, since the days of the dispersion, going back centuries, when Jews and Israelites were scattered all over the world, and in the communities that they established everywhere they went, and formed synagogues wherever they went, week after week after week after week, their rabbis would stand up and read to them out of the law of Moses. And suddenly now, if you have all of these Gentiles believing on the Jewish Messiah, and they're coming in, and they're not observing the most offensive things, like like they're eating meat that's offered to idols. Idolatry was one of the most sensitive things to the, to the Jewish people, right? It is like the great sin of the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, the thing that provoked God to anger the most, you know, was their idolatry. I mean, starting with the, the golden calf that Aaron had made and right down through all the other things, you know, when they're worshiping idols and setting up their high places and setting up even things in the temple of God itself that aren't, have nothing to do with it in order to worship God. That idolatry was a great offense. And if you have these Gentiles who are believing just freely going into the market and buying food that was maybe meat that had been part of an animal that had been sacrificed to an idol, that's going to cause offense to the Jewish believer. It has nothing to do with whether they're saved or not. But love, love, love for people demanded sacrifice of personal preference. Do you understand? We live in a world that has no concept of this anymore. These things are written in this letter because for the sake of love, things that might seem like they're nothing to you, but might be offensive to these other people, you need to like lay them aside. Do you understand? Do you follow? Legalism is when you... Add things to the gospel itself. Legalism is not a life without rules, without rules of conduct. Otherwise, you'd have to throw most of the New Testament out. Because the New Testament is filled with charges to Christians concerning their personal conduct. Right? We're commanded to love. We're commanded to abound in good works. Is that legalism? We're commanded to assemble with one another. Is that legalism? If I say to someone, you know what? We're suppo- you're supposed to be assembling with the church. That's legalism. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not telling you in order to be saved, you must do thus or thus. But you ought to assemble with other believers because by God's grace, through faith, you have been saved. We're commanded to spread the gospel. Is that legalism? We're called to pursue holiness. We're called to give. We're called to share. We're called to pray. We're called to practice hospitality. We're called to forgive other people. Is that legalism? No. Because we're not saying you have to do this or do that in order to be saved. The only way that you're saved is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace. That is affirmed everywhere in the New Testament. And yet, the New Testament is filled with admonishments like this. Putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, 
working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Is that legalism? That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25-29. No, it's not legalism. It's what you ought, it's, it's, it's counsel and teaching and a command to obey that ought to make a Christian desire to honor God and to worship God by having these changes made in their life in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in them. Amen? I find it very important to make this distinction as we go through this passage in Acts chapter 15. Because there are two extremes. There are two extremes when it comes to God's grace. One of them is that God's grace cannot possibly stand alone. You need sacraments. You need, you need religious rituals. You need certain things that confirm that you're actually, truly a Christian to show that. That's false. All you need is to believe the gospel. And by God's grace you are saved. The importance of affirming grace is that the more grace is affirmed, the more God is glorified. When you understand grace, you understand that God has done everything. Everything about you being saved, all praise, honor, and glory, and credit goes to Him when you understand grace. But then the other extreme that a false understanding of grace can produce is that there's no code of conduct on my life. And that I can just do whatever I want. Right? That's the other extreme. The truth of the matter is this. Grace is that God has done everything that there is that could be done to save us. And all praise and glory goes to Him. And all you do is believe. And you can't add circumcision, adherence to laws, rituals, sacraments, traditions, rites, anything else. You can't add to it. And if you do add to it, then it ceases to be grace. Because now your own performance and your own merit and your own religious works are part of what you are trusting is. That's the truth. Only grace can save us. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then the truth also is that having been saved by His grace, I have a desire to devote the rest of my life here on earth to His service, to doing His will, to being part of the mission that has been going on for 2,000 years to spread the gospel among the inhabitants of the earth. And the New Testament is written to counsel me and teach me how to do that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Works can't save us, but the Bible is written to equip us to do good works, which don't save us. We are saved by His grace, and now we devote ourselves to works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? You follow, everyone? That's why it's necessary to look through these things. That's what legalism is. Now, now we come into the part of it where we see what actually happens at the council. And there's three things that happen. First, Peter stands up. Right? And Peter may be as far as we go with this today. We'll come back next week and we'll catch Barnabas and Paul. And then we'll catch James as well. 
But basically what happens is this. The apostles and elders in verse 6 come together. Verse 6, Acts 15. The apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And again, there's more dispute, right? So when, and we're not, we're not given any insight into the specific sayings in the disputing. Wouldn't it be interesting to hear uh, what they said? I mean, you can read what Paul wrote. You have a pretty good idea of where Paul stood on this, right? But wouldn't it have been interesting to hear some of the things that were said on both sides of this? All we're told is that the Pharisees who believed said it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So after a whole bunch of disputing in Jerusalem about this in this council, and there's a lot of people, it says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together, but later in the passage you see that the multitudes are there to hear a lot of this as well. So there's a lot of people assembled together. So there's a lot at stake. And when it comes to the grace of God, you're talking about the essence of the gospel. That God is the one who saves us, not we ourselves. And so there is a lot at stake. So Peter stands up and he says this. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Years have passed since what happened in Acts chapter 10. But that's what Peter is referring to. He's referring to when God sent him to the house of Cornelius and a bunch of Gentiles heard the gospel and they believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And Peter had used that a couple of times already to explain the validity of the Gentiles being saved simply by believing the gospel, simply by God's grace. And here he is referring to it again. You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, he goes on, who knows the heart, there's an important little thing to point out, isn't there? I mean, really, in a sense, that's almost the most important thing it says in this chapter. You can have all your circumcisions. You can have all of your religious rituals. You can have all of your ways that you think you can justify yourself before God. You can have your religious system. You can just take it, do whatever you want with it. God sees the heart. God knows the heart of the person who is His. God knows the heart of the person who is not. Ultimately, the one who knows whether or not someone is saved is God. That's another reason why religious works are a fallacy. Because a person can convince himself that he's saved because I've done this sacrament, I've done that sacrament, I've gone to church, I have this religious ritual. And listen, there may be no real love for God. In the, there, are a lot of, there are millions and millions of people like this, I suspect. Do you hear what I'm saying? There, there are millions of people who... There's no evident, manifest love for God in their lives at all. They don't even want to talk about Him. They don't worship Him. They don't serve Him. It's completely foreign to them. They can't even explain to you what the gospel is. But they've been catechized. They've been, they've been uh, confirmed. They go to sacraments. They, and not just like in a traditional Roman Catholic setting, but even in other settings, even in evangelical settings. They go to church. They worship. They listen to Christian radio. Whatever it is they do. But there's no real love for God in the heart. God sees the heart. 
The fact that God sees the heart, the fact that Peter notes that God sees the heart, is a very important fact concerning salvation being only by grace through faith. Because God who sees the heart, how do you add religious ritual to a God who knows the heart of the person who truly believes? So God, who sees the heart, acknowledged them, those, those Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Right? So Peter stands up, and he gives them a history lesson. Years ago, I was sent by God to some Gentiles, and God who sees their hearts... When they were listening. If you, if you remember chapter 10, it was even while Peter was still speaking. You understand? There wasn't like, bow your head, close your eyes, and pray this prayer after me. While Peter was speaking the words of the gospel to them, they believed and the Holy Spirit came to them and it was manifest with tongues and whatever else was going on that maybe isn't written there. But listen, God sees the heart. They heard, they believed, God knew it, God gave them the Spirit. How can circumcision and adherence to an external code of law add to that? It can't. God who saw the heart blessed them by His grace, His sovereign grace, and poured out His Spirit on them. And they were saved. Their hearts were purified when they believed. Now, I love this in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Ready? Which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. What is that? That's called reason. That's called reason. It's basic logic. What is the account? Listen, if you read through the Old Testament and its laws and its annals of history of Israel... And you see its law. And you see its code. The code is pure. The code is holy. But what is the history of Israel that you read in the Old Testament? Failure. Sin. Failure. Sin. Just like us. Turning away from it. Having their nations, entire nations being dragged away captive. And destroyed. Scattered everywhere in the earth. So... What Peter is doing is he's reasoning with them and saying, look, our history, the thing that you're trying to prop up and impose on these Gentiles who received the Holy Spirit when they believed, that's something that if you really understand our history, we don't really have a very good track record of keeping it ourselves. So he says he refers to it as a yoke on their neck. That is to say they are bound like a they are bound like an animal, bound to a plow, to some farming burden, right? That's what, that's what the law was like. Jesus came to break that yoke. Jesus came, to, Jesus came to set people free from that which they could never themselves keep. And so he reasons with them and says, how is it that you want to add something to this wonderful message of the gospel which when was preached to them, God saw their hearts and in an instant filled them with the Spirit, just like He did to us. 
How do you want to add to that? You need to be circumcised and keep the law when our ancestors didn't do that. What is that? It's, it's rhetorical logic. I like that. Peter comes and he gives them reason. I'm going to stop it there today. We'll pick up with the last thing that Peter says when we start off next week. But you can see where it goes there quickly in verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved in the same manner as they. I'll pick that apart more next Sunday, but let me just finish by saying this. If you're here today, if you're listening to this today, I hope that you are trusting only in what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. And I hope you are trusting only in the goodness of God. Search not inside yourself for some meritorious reason why God saved you. What you and I deserve because of our wickedness is hell. The only way that we are saved is because God, in His own sovereign goodness, chose to do what He did through Jesus' Son. When Jesus died on the cross... There was the wrath and the justice of of God against your sin and my sin poured out. All of the lying, all of the stealing, all of the immorality, all all of the wickedness in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, even in the deep recesses of our souls where maybe we're not even conscious of it. All of the utter, total depravity and wickedness of you and I. Jesus took the justice and the penalty against it when he died on the cross. What you owed has been paid. He died. They buried him in a grave and on the third day he rose from the dead. And that's it. That is all of it. And you are called to believe. Not believe and join Fellowship Bible Church. Not believe and get circumcised. Not believe and undergo a a religious catechism and all sorts of religious works to confirm anything. Just believe and God Himself will give you Himself. The Holy Spirit will come into you and you will be forever sealed as a child of God. Your sins forgiven. That is God's gift. That is God's grace. That's the way the Jews got saved in the beginning of the gospel. That's the way these Gentiles were now getting saved. That's the only way today still that people get saved. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Have you been saved? Have you been saved like these? Have you been saved like the Jews at Pentecost were? Have You know, that great sermon that Peter preached and they all believed? Have you been saved the way these Gentiles have been saved? They heard the gospel of Jesus and they believed? That's the only way to be saved. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. To be testified in due time. And it's due time right now. Let us pray. Thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that the truth of your grace would reign over us. And that we would not turn from it at all.
Lord, we saw a couple of other things too. We saw the importance of church. May we all, Lord God, in, in what some people even call like a post-church age, which is a very sad saying, may we all see still the validity and the importance of your church as a vital institution wherein you reign and disseminate your truth to the entire world. Thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, may we also recognize that there are manners of living and and things that for your glory that we should apply ourselves to. But there's nothing that we do that saves us. Salvation is your free gift. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, when that was almost corrupted, you stopped it. And now we can boldly assert and proclaim today that you are holy, you are righteous, you have dealt with the sins of men in the only way that could properly be dealt with, leaving us a chance to be saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life for us and rose from the dead. Thank you, Almighty Father, for your grace, wherein the person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is saved. May people hear this today and turn to you and receive your salvation. May those of us who have your salvation be inspired to worship and desire to spread the news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand up. We're going to sing one more hymn. Let me get my singers back up here and our, and our pianist up here. Let's open to number 340-something, 345. And we're going to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, 345.